One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, Latitude. Wow, this is amazing. This is amazing. Thank you so much for coming along. So, um, my name's Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And uh, this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. <laughs> so, I don't know how many of you actually listen to Talk Art, if you know what we do, but me and Rob met about 10 years ago at a Tracy M in retrospective in Edinburgh. And we hit it off. Realised we're both art geeks. We completely geeked each other off for the last 10 years. But in October, we started this podcast called Talk Art. This is our very first live uh, podcast, which is... Yeah, thank you. That's a nice, that's a nice little... And we, we're, that's good. we're recording this tonight. And the guest we've invited on is someone who endlessly inspires both Russell and myself. Yes. Um, I think she's genuinely making the world a better place um, with everything that she does. For the last three and a half years, she's had an incredible podcast. A lot of you will already know because 65 million people have heard it. Um, million. Or she's had 65 million downloads anyway of The Guilty Feminist. And... um, she is creating a new space uh, for women and for all of us and um, making us think about feminism in a really new and powerful way. Yeah. Um, and tonight we want to talk to her about contemporary art and historical art and feminism and all kinds of different topics. We would like to welcome to the stage our guest tonight, Deborah, Deborah Francis Wright. Hi. So Deborah's the busiest woman at Latitude this year. This is your, what number's this? Oh God, I think it's probably my seventh show. But to be honest, it's all just chat in a tent, isn't it? It's just chat under tarpaulin. You can't call it a show, gang. Come on, let's be clear. Um, How are you feeling? Great, this is going to be a show. This is going to be my first show at Latitude. Yes. We're going to bring it. We're going to bring it right to the outside of the tent. Absolutely. So we're going to start it off as if we're doing our podcast normally with our normal intro and then we're just going to kick off. So it's the first time. It's all a bit of an improv this moment for us, but here we go. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. This is Talker. Welcome to Talker. How are you, Rob? I'm really glamorous. What, are you really glamorous? Yeah, because we're on a stage. We are on a stage. And actually, I've been on a stage here before. What? In 2006, no. the first ever year of Latitude, I used to be in a pop band when I was growing up, and uh, we headlined the Art of Noise tent or something. It was like a dance tent. Does that still exist, or did you shut Probably it down? Probably not. I think I shut it down. Yeah. But anyway, um, it's very nice to be back here, and my the festival has grown. It's really impressive, and we've loved today. Yeah, we've loved today. We've been hanging around. We saw nothing of your show, but we met you afterwards for a drink. They did. They came for the important part, which was the post-show Prosecco. <laughs> <laughs> That's us. Um, anyway, well, our guest today is a friend of mine, and we've worked together on an acting scale, and now we're here today to talk about art with you. It's an unqualified delight, Russell Tovey, to be here talking about yeah. art. That's exciting. So we should just start off then with your life, Debs. Yeah. So you were born... In Brisbane, Australia. I was born in Brisbane, Australia. That's right. My accent comes and goes. Um, I moved to the Gold Coast when I was four. Um, So most of my childhood was in sort of like home and away, but with more God. (laughs) And uh, most of my childhood was praying in the bush, really. They used to take us out to these bush Bible retreats. 
and we'd be, I'd spent nearly all my childhood and teenage years, all my teenage years and early 20s on my knees and not in a good way. Because um, my parents became Jehovah's Witnesses when I was 14 and uh, I got baptized at 16 and that completely changed my life because it's a high control group and uh, the men run everything. So I was in a very small scale, highly religious, fundamentalist patriarchy until I broke out of that myself in my early 20s. So that's sort of the landscape of my life. Um, but art-wise, yeah. my mother was a painter growing up, and she'd. So your mother was Jehovah. Well, my mother wasn't Jehovah. No, Jehovah is God in the sky. Right. I'm oh, sorry. Your mother was a Jehovah's Witness. My mother sorry. was not an almighty, all-seeing, omnipotent God. Although sometimes it felt that way. <laughs> um, it's, she uh, no, she was. We had a perfect normal childhood. We're just Church of England, which is a cake-based religion, as far as I can make out. And I think it's, it's, I quite liked being Church of England because it was mostly cakes at fates. And I think the more cake in your religion and the, 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 the less fundamental, it's if you it, just keep it cake to faith, up the cake, low faith. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, every time they take the cake out, they replace it with killing. So <laughs> I was very happy being an odd, you know, we'd go Church of England Christmas and Easter. And then, uh, but... My mother had always wanted to be an artist. When she was a little girl, she said, I could imagine the, the oil paint under the brush. And at school, she went to a posh private school, but she wasn't allowed to do the extracurricular stuff. And she said, I remember the smell of it, the linseed oil, and I just knew that's what I needed to do. And she wanted to go to art school, and her parents wouldn't allow it. That was for not nice girls. You have to get married and, you know. This was in Brisbane still. Yeah, my, well, she was actually in another kind of more Australian country town, a sort of quite cultural Australian country town, actually. Um, but uh, So there's a lot of culture there, but she wasn't really allowed to participate. So then when I was a kid, when I was probably about, I think, eight, she, went, she just took herself off to art classes in the evening, to evening classes, and found she was really good. And she started selling her paintings. And oh. for my whole childhood, half of the income in our house was through paintings. No. So I spent so many weekends at art What, what was it like? Like landscapes, figuration? It was sort of like people in landscapes, sort of little, but quite impressionistic, really, really lovely. And uh, she was a very successful kind of, you know, local artist. But she'd send her paintings to galleries in Melbourne and Sydney and art shows all around. So it wasn't, I mean, she wasn't Tracy Emin. And I think we need to be incredibly clear about that. <laughs> she, my mother is neither Jehovah nor Tracy Emin. <laughs> if you take away nothing else, <laughs> those are the things to remember. Do you, the do you have Trinity. any of her work? Did you ever keep any of her paintings? Yes. Um, well, she never would ever hang her own work at home. I think she thought it was vain. And she didn't want to see it. You know, she, she, I think she knew she was, a, a, she was an artist that, that, you know, galleries and art fest and that kind of thing. I'm just saying she wasn't in this big art scene where she was kind of lolling around on an unmade bed, you know, talking to people who just sort of smashed a window or something. It wasn't like that. <laughs> um, she wasn't doing interesting things with chairs. But she made a good, really good living painting. And did but, you ever go to any of her exhibitions? Oh, all the time. We were raised at art exhibitions. And was that inspiring for you as a young child? Yeah, it was. And I was so proud of her. She used to win things sometimes. There'd be art prizes, you know, and she would win. And I'd be so proud of her. Oh. And, you know, weirdly... I think because my mother works, a lot of mums didn't work. It was sort of like Australian beach town where the dads worked. It was sort of, I mean, I'm not the vintage era of Mad Men, but a straight, Queensland was always said to be 20 years behind everywhere else. So it had that feel where the mum stayed home and the dads went to work. I was always so proud of my mum working. Mm. And I was so proud when I go to art exhibitions and she would be there winning a prize or the red dots, the red dots would go yeah, up and they were sold, so sold. exciting yeah. in the family when the red dot would, would go she, up. Would she find it exciting? Oh yeah, she loved it. Well, you're seeing the red dots go up and she would always sell everything and other people would sell wow. nothing sometimes. And so, but she never painted anything for us. And then just before she stopped, I begged her to paint something for me and she did. Um, but then I found one of her paintings online at an art auction site, and I bought it. And that's the one that I really that matters to me. It's a really it's a little one. Do you, do you remember it in your life before it got sold, or you didn't see it? Oh, I mean, she painted so many paintings. Really? I don't remember it, but I I remember 
I, when, when I got it on, in the auction, I was so pleased, and it got shipped to me in London, and it was all the jacaranda trees in Australia. There's a whole thing in Australia. When the jacarandas come out, that's when the exams start. And so jacarandas are always trigger exam fear. Oh, God. Beautiful purple trees. And this is amazing. Uh, you know, I just love it. And it's this little one that hangs by my fireplace that I bought back out of the how much did, How much did you buy it for? I don't know, 500 quid or something. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, and, uh, but I, I, I loved that. But also I have a very special um, drawing that she did, that she bought. I should have looked up who, who drew it, actually, because I think it's well-known in Australia and I can't remember. But... <laughs> My mum said to me, she's quite morbid at times, and she said to me, is there anything you want when I die? And I was like, Can we, do we have to talk about this, mother? And she was like, just, just tell me now, and I'll put your name on it. I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about taking your things when you die. She said, just tell me. I said, all right. There's this frame drawing, and I remember it so clearly. My mum and dad coming home from an art exhibition that they'd been to at night that we couldn't come to, where we'd had a babysitter. And they didn't do that much, and they were so excited to show they'd bought this piece of art, and they were beyond thrilled and so excited to unveil it to the children in the morning. And it was a sketch of a violinist who was quite a famous Australian violinist. And um, he's more valuable now because he's dead. Um, but uh, they brought it up and they were so happy. And I said to her, and she always had this in the house, and I said, that reminds me of you and dad being really happy and oh. the family being happy at breakfast and us being thrilled together. And she sent it to me for my next birthday. Oh. She didn't even wait till she died. She's still alive. <laughs> Spoiler, not Jehovah, not Tracy Emin, and alive. The Holy Trinity, the things you need to know about my mother. I love her. Love and her. So, yeah, and I, so I have this. It's very precious to me. But do you know what? I looked on the back of this sketch when yeah. she sent it to me. The price was still on it. It was $25. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a date, but it, it was so thrilling for them. Maybe it was $75 or something, but it was under $100. And I remember it being this big thing that they'd bought up. Wow. You know? So what, what prices do you think she sold her paintings for then? Oh, hundreds. Really, yeah. Yeah, yeah hundreds, uh, but not thousands. Yeah, but it was, it was, it was a, I mean, it was a great income. But I remember always, we'd always have to be going to the framers. And, you know, those things. When I was a child, the, the day wasn't set around children. The day was set around grown-ups and children had to come along. I don't know if that's the same as your childhood. But children now, the day is around the children. The children need to go. The children are minded by someone because the parents need to go and do something. In our, in our day, you were just in the back of the car going where they were going and you made your own entertainment, which was mostly sort of poking your siblings. And so we were always at framers and art exhibitions and running around and, you know. So yeah, I have very, very, very happy memories. Do you have early memories of going to museums or did your mum ever take you to look at institutions, institutions oh, things yeah. like that? Oh yeah. So what was like an institution in your town that you grew up in? Uh, there was nothing in our town. There was nothing. There was the beach and there was barbecues that were state-owned and run. Free barbecues. That's what my, my husband, when I took him back to the Gold Coast, he couldn't believe it. He was like, but I don't understand. The government pay for these barbecues and maintain them. Gas barbecues on the beach. And I was like, yeah, it's, 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 a gov it's like the NHS barbecues in Australia. If they were taken away or defunded, people would, there'd be an outcry. And also, meter maids in my town... The council would pay for women to dress up in bikinis and stilettos with sashes. And if your, if your parking meter was about to run out, a pretty lady would come up and put 20 cents in. And, and, or maybe you're just about to pay for your parking and she'd come along and do it for you. That was I didn't know everywhere didn't have meter maids when I was growing up. I thought it was normal. I expected to get to London and find women in bikinis at Heathrow paying for the Heathrow Express. No, <laughs> this is completely local. Just very odd things in Queensland. The big banana, you'd be driving for miles, there'd be nothing, and then suddenly on the horizon would come the big banana. The big banana is the size of a skyscraper. It's nothing but a big banana with a little tiny banana gift shop where they have scale models of the big banana as key rings, which are just little bananas. <laughs> Mad things like that that you don't realise. When I got to New York, I assumed there would be a big apple. No, there's no big apple. It's just, there's so, there's so many things like that from my childhood. So to go somewhere cultured, that was Brisbane. Yeah. That was your closest city. You'd all get in the car. It was, it's much quicker now because they made the roads, you know, better. But then it was two and a half hours drive to Brisbane. It was a big deal. And we'd go to the ballet... That was a big deal. We'd go to the theatre and we'd go to whatever that national gallery was and walk around and look at Renaissance paintings and Australian paintings and things. That was, 
that was quite standard. And I also remember saying to my mum, I was worried we couldn't afford it. I was always very sensitive to money. I knew there was money was tight. And I remember once saying to my mother, but can we afford to go to the ballet? Which I think is something I'm, ado- I'm adopted. And I think it's something maybe with adopted kids that you always feel like, you know, almost, no, I always felt part of the family. I don't know, I just always worried for my parents more. And I remember saying to my mother, can we afford this? And my mother said, uh, if of your worldly goods, two loaves alone are left, sell one and with the dole buy hyacinths to feed thy soul. And when I left home, she sent, she sent me flowers with a note that said, don't forget the hyacinths. Wow. And I've always held that. And one time when she was feeling down, a few years ago, I sent her some hyacinths with this note. Aww. And she rang me and said, thanks for the stocks. I said, what? She said, thanks for the stocks. I said, I didn't send you stocks. I said, I sent you hyacinths. She said, you didn't. You sent me stocks. I said, I'm telling you. She said, I literally just got this from the florist. A bunch of stocks. And the note says, if of your worldly goods, two loaves alone are left, sell one and with the doll, buy stocks. So they thought, we haven't got any hyacinths in. We'll change the poem. Oh, no. I'm like, what the fuck? Just send the stocks and write the poem. Jesus, an archaic poem, mate. That's terrible. So that's Australia. Do you, are the, are Lesser. The, are the meter mates still there? Is that still a local tradition? What is that? Meter what is mates? what? The meter mates. Yeah, they? they're still going. They're still going. They're not funded by the council anymore. Right. It's now more a Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> Go fund me. Right. So later on, your family became Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes. And I'm really intrigued to find out what it was like um, during those years with regards to art and whether Jehovah's Witnesses, like how, how their response is to art. Well, the Jehovah's Witness art is very specific. It's all done by men in Brooklyn, in New York, um, now more upstate New York. It's all controlled by men in America. And they commission... You've probably seen the Watchtower. They've come to the door, and now they increasingly have carts on the street. The, the Jehovah's Witness vision of the future is that God will return the earth to a paradise. It's not heaven, it's earth. Mm-hmm. And I don't know... It's Armageddon, isn't it? Armageddon comes first, yeah. and then the earth will be a paradise forever, and you will live forever in paradise. Um, and I don't know what your idea of paradise is, but the Watchtower's idea is very specific, and it is always depicted in artwork. Um, the Watchtower idea of paradise is people in national dress passing fruit to each other. It's like a man in a muumuu passing a watermelon to a woman in a sari, and then on the next page, she's passing back a banana. It's... Like that fraternity, just fruit-based. It's a clear, entirely fruit-based economy. It's, and it's so... The drawings are so... They're like children's illustrations. Yeah, but they're, in like, they're like cuddling lions and stuff, aren't they? In bushes and... I'm glad you've noticed that. That's because we'll all be vegan and also the lions will also be vegan. Got it. The lion and lamb will lie down together. That's scripture. <laughs> That's Psalms. That's straight up. Is that Psalms or Proverbs? Any theologians in? I think it's Psalms. So how did, but how did you, so if you were Church of England, how did you find Jehovah? Uh, they knocked on the door. That's their, very much their campaign. It's the most famous thing about them, Russ, is they come to the door and knock on the door. And if you let them in and enough times, you'll find yourself uh, brainwashed. And you went off by yourself without the your, rest of your family oh, knowing? No. Oh, no. No, 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 no. No, it wasn't me. No, no, no. It was, it was the, the whole family. Right. Yeah, but I was very, very, very seduced by it. I was very brainwashed by it. Yeah. How old was you at that point? 14. And I was wow. And, and, and these images that you were seeing, like depicted in art, would they be up in the Jehovah's ten- temple? No, it's not a temple. It's a kingdom hall. It's all very, it's very art-free, actually, the kingdom hall. They, everything is done. There's, I, I craved a religion with high ceilings and stained glass, or even, you know, something with any kind of ritual. And like the Vatican, you're like... Yeah, yeah. Or, but it could have been, you know, it could have been a Hindu temple or, you know, yeah, something yeah, yeah. with beauty and grace and metaphor and, and glory. The hymns, the Jehovah's Witness hymns are just called songs, and they're such dirges because no one can write music. And so it's 
We thank you, Jehovah. Each day. And it's so unmusical. Everybody it's like happy birthday. You Everybody wanted something him. transcendent. Oh, you wanted yeah. something like lift my something soul. Something you could harmonise to. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an atheist now, but I love choral music. I joined the choir when I was at Oxford. I just loved it. I love, I love beautiful music. But there was no art. They changed the hymns, the Jehovah's Witnesses, every 10 to 15 years. So no one catches anything as ungodly as sentimentality. There's no culture to that religion. There's not one day where we all come together and do something mysterious or give each other gifts. It's just all the fun and all the culture is killed. That's kind of what I found so interesting, though, is this idea that once you become a Jehovah's Witness, they probably did reduce the amount of culture or access to art because yeah. they want to control you and to make you think about, you know, the one thing, which is the end of the world or, you know, Armageddon but also I'd heard that when you went to university like they would never have allowed that either oh no because so, the idea of education like that is the enemy because then you realize everything they're saying to you isn't actually necessarily the, the truth yeah that is that is their <laughs> that is their main objection to so how was it for you when you finally left Australia and you went to Oxford University which is like such a place full of culture and history and art and all of in, all this information. Was it just like totally awe-inspiring? Oh yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And and you know there was you know yeah a, a beautiful architecture and stained glass and and paintings everywhere. But then you start to realise how patriarchal everything is outside the cult. The cult is a small-scale patriarchy, and you think outside it's going to be different. It isn't because. The pictures in the dining hall, every single one is of a white, as an old white man who's now dead. And where were the women? Where were the people of colour? Well, they're just not, their stories aren't told and their paintings aren't painted, their portraits aren't here. So it's, it's also then being able to take what you can from that experience, but to reimagine the world in your own art, whatever that may be. And for me, that's not fine art or, you know, that's comedy and storytelling and, and other things. But... Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's a magnificent place to be, Oxford. It, but you knew that you had to go, you had to leave Australia after you left the Jehovah Witness Temple, Kingdom Temple Kingdom Hall. Hall. Kingdom yeah. Hall. And, but you just knew that Oxford was the place for you. Oh, no, I came over to London as a Jehovah's Witness. I just lost my faith uh, over a period of time and pulled, pulled back and pulled back and pulled back. And then when I was finally out, that's when I went to university. So when you came to England, what, what kind of art did you see in the UK that you responded to? Or are there artists What was the first that... museums and stuff you went to when you got to the UK? Oh, yeah. I was constantly in art galleries and, and re, yeah, re-examining my, you know, my whole connection to the world. Because as a Jehovah's Witness, everything is thought, thought, thought through for you. You don't have any of your own opinions. There's not one opinion that you hold that isn't held by the Watchtower Society. So you have to come out and decide, what are my politics? And what do I like? What kind of things do I like? So, yeah, I was, I was connected to those things. And I, um, uh, yeah, and I, there are now sort of feminist artists I, I like and admire. Russell was asking me backstage, are there any feminist artists you like? And I said... I really like Cara Walker. Do you know Cara Walker? And he went, yes. Like I'd said, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> he was like, ah, uh, yeah. Cara Walker is one of the most important African-American feminist artists in the world. And I was like, this podcast is going to be intimidating. <laughs> right here, I right think, now. I think Russell really wanted Deborah to come on the show yeah. and give him like tips for really obscure feminist artists yeah. that he'd never heard of so that he could go and collect it. Yeah. Yes, and, I uh, have And support it. But I collect art now. I mean, I don't think on the level or the budget that Russ does. Yeah. Do you collect art, Robert? Yeah, and guess what? That's how we met. We met through collecting art, but when I met Russell, the only art I was collecting were by women. And um, I got into art thanks to Frida Kahlo, which is another reason I really wanted you to come on this podcast, because mm. Frida, at the time, in the early 90s, I was like 11 years old when I first heard about her. And if you really want to know the truth, I actually realised the other day, I think I discovered about Frida Kahlo through Madonna's Blonde Ambition uh, era. She did a documentary, I, I think on Omnibus or something, on the BBC, maybe in like 91, 92, and she spoke about this woman called Frida Kahlo. And that is actually, I think, where it all came from. So that started the whole of my life changed because of that one moment. 
Wow. Yeah, and back then you couldn't even see Frida's art because in England there was no one knew about Frida Kahlo. No. So I actually read a book about Frida's life written by Hayden Herrera before I saw her art. And my brother, this is turning to my interview now, but I'll be very quick. But um, my brother died uh, when I was 13. And after reading that book, I loved this idea of surviving through art. And she'd had a, a bus accident and really hurt her back. And then she managed just to basically have a really tough life. But, and also fighting, you know, the politics of patriarchy as well. And being this very strong woman. And it gave me such hope and such kind of, um, you know, the idea that I had a future, you know, being gay and my brother's just died and all this drama is happening. But her story gave me hope before I even saw her paintings. So, yeah, women artists are the, pretty much the reason I, I am and why I exist. Wow. Which is why I also love your show. Well, I accidentally collect female uh, created art. It's not deliberate, but I just, when I came to think about it, I went, oh, that's by a woman, that's by a woman, that's by a woman. And I've got to know two artists through collecting. Um, one is a Parisian artist called Nushka, who she looks like the woman who would be cast in a Woody Allen film about a Parisian artist. <laughs> she is so <laughs> glamorous. And her, well, boyfriend, when I started collecting her, now the husband and father of her child, um, he designs yachts. Oh my God, they're so glamorous. They're so, I'm a feminist, but I so <laughs> want her life. So want to be her. She's so glamorous. They've got a child now that's angelic, this cherub that's running around, sort of, you know, falling asleep on a pile of easels. You know, oh, it's just so beautiful. And she, her, when, I, when I just spotted her and I was like, I spotted her on Saatchi Art, which is a website. I don't know if anyone goes to Saatchi Art, but it's a website where you can see artists from all around the world and collect artists that maybe you wouldn't get to see in an art gallery. You can buy them much more cheaply because you're direct, dealing directly with the artists and Saatchi just take a cut. But also Saatchi take responsibility. So you pay Saatchi and they pay them right, right, and you right. get the art, etc. And I found Nishka and I was like, I just love this. And it was a real stretch for me to afford one of her paintings, but I did it. And I'm so glad I did because I can't afford her anymore. Um, <laughs> but I also commissioned her to paint a picture of my husband at Christmas, at our sort of happy place where we go at Christmas with our friends in the background. It was based on a photograph I'd taken and she, made, she, she painted this beautiful painting and I gave it to him for Christmas. It was really a present for me. And, uh, and I was so sort of thrilled with that. So I have an original Nishka and a commissioned Nishka. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Her. And I really feel it's an investment because her, the value of her paintings has gone up so much. But I would never sell it. That's the problem with art. Yeah, it's yeah, an yeah, it's yeah. unsaleable investment. It's a useless investment because you would feel like you were giving away one of your children. If I had children, I probably wouldn't say that, but I don't, so I will. Um, to you know, you're like, who would sell this? But I always think if there's a war or something, I'll sell it to an oligarch. And you actually ended up having a, uh, a friendship with her. Yeah, I mean, with Nush, I, you know, I know a little bit and I feel like we talk, you know, we talk and I, I, I want to, every time she's had an exhibition in Paris, she's asked me to the opening and I've never been able to go, but I really want to do that because I want to live a more glamorous life where I'm just lolling around in Paris. I'm just going to Paris for the weekend for an exhibition, for an opening of my friend's exhibition. This is how I wish to live. It's not how I live, just to be clear. Um, but I'd love to do that one day. And the other artist, Annie Terrazzo, who does, she's from LA, and she does amazing collages, and then she draws on top of the collage, and it's beautiful. And I've got two of hers as well, and I want to commission something from her. But I do know Annie. If she comes over, I hang out with her. If I go to LA, I hang out and have coffee with her. Do you live with all these in your house as well? Oh, yeah. 
And didn't you also commission an artist uh, to make a wedding gift for a couple? <laughs> I did. I did. For someone, actually, who at the time was up and coming, but is now very, very, very famous. But sadly, the marriage did not last. And I feel, I'm just so upset about it because the, the present was, I feel like she might listen to this, but the present was a picture that somebody else took at their wedding that was stunning. And then I commissioned an artist who manipulates f photographs and it, she sort of he uh, she she sort of made it look like a Banksy almost like on a brick wall, and then she manipulates it and then she paints on top in pastels, and I had it framed and I've given it to them but like it's useless now because they've broken up so who wants it nobody and she's too famous to sell it on so it'd have to go into a skip no. I'm sure it's just in a dark room. It's probably like in a room locked away. Well, or like maybe if, if she's really famous, it's probably in storage. She's probably just sent it off to storage. You, that is in a skip. I mean, I would, have, I would not blame them for putting it in a skip. But what do you do when you have personal art like that? If someone paints something for you, then you, the relationship breaks up. If yeah. you're dating an artist and then the relationship breaks up, what do you do with that art? Well, actually, I know there is a very famous artist's work who got bought by a celebrity. Um, it was given to her by the husband on the wedding day, and they divorced, and it ended up back on resale because it was in auction recently. And wow. the artist told me it was the wedding gift, so I guess people just sell it. What would you do, uh, uh, Russell, if you, had, if you were in, in love with an artist yeah. and he painted you... Yeah. And then sadly, this is a tragic tale now, yeah. he leaves you for another man. I'd burn it. <laughs> <laughs> but what that if it was happening. worth a lot? What if it was worth a lot because he'd become really, really famous and you could get, you know, I would half film a myself good... burning it and then send it to him. Russell, <laughs> that's not acceptable. No, you cannot would destroy that, art. Would, would, oh, would, would that would... film be a piece of art in, in sort of, you know, like yeah, when they burnt artwork. all that money? Would it be like that? What was that? The K Collective, whatever they're called, who burnt all that money is art. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. KLF. 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 I would just donate. If it, was, if it was a famous artist, I'd just give it to a museum or something. I'd just gift it, I guess. Would you give your, a picture of yourself to the National Portrait Museum? Big time. Natural Portrait Gallery? Because I think that would be arrogant. I would never go up, to the <laughs> go up to the National yeah. Portrait Gallery and go, you'll be wanting this. It's <laughs> a picture of people, me. People are going to want to see this. People so. are going to put... Whatever, what? Who the fuck is that? The Queen? Get it off the wall. <laughs> Who's that? Is that is that a Frida Kahlo self-portrait? Get it off the wall. This is Russell Tovey. <laughs> Tovey time. Painted uh, by Russell Tovey. It's portrait. called painted by my ex. He's a fucking twat. <laughs> and uh, I want it up front and centre, and I want it up there now. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Going back to Madonna, we may as well talk about Madonna because may as well. Yeah. We we love Madonna. We Madonna, Madonna dated Jean-Michel Basquiat, whose paintings now sell for like. 20 million or something, or even more, I don't know, crazy money. And she apparently, when they broke up, he called her up and said, I want my work back, because he'd given her paintings, and she gave them back to him. And she didn't destroy them, so she gave them back. And I actually think that's really cool. I'll give it, I'll give it back to him then. I'll exactly, give it back. thank you. Fine. I think thank if you. a man do has painted me and given me the paintings, and then he's broken my heart, and then he's rung up and gone, oh. Or did she break his heart? I'm not sure who broke whose it's heart. It's irrelevant. And then. If I get a WhatsApp from him going, oh, by the way, that painting I painted of you in that intimate moment, can I have it back? I'd be like, seriously, fuck you. Seriously, I can't. I'm just trying to imagine how many different ways you can go and fuck yourself right now. Uh, and why don't you paint yourself fucking yourself? Because that's all you're going to be getting. I'm sorry, I feel like I've, I've that's... You dropped the F-bomb a bit, yeah. You yeah. dropped the F-bomb, yeah, yeah, but we yeah, love yeah, it, yeah. look, they love it. Woo. Bring it on. There's no children, this is an art, it's an art lecture. The other thing I found out about you... <laughs> don't like art, yes, go from, on. ...from Russell, was that you've actually painted your house, like certain colours of the walls in your house... To match to the, match the uh, art. Oh, you've yeah. you made space for the art. I love this. I've got a painting of... Um, it's two cows walking through an art gallery. It's cooler than it sounds. It sounds kitsch. It sounds kitsch, but it's very funky. And it's two cows walking through an art gallery. And the, art, the, the floor is red. The wall of the gallery is green. And there's a painting in the gallery with a gold frame. So I, paint, I framed this gold, and I painted my wall the same color green as the wall in the art gallery. And it is cool AF. And if you want to come over and see it in situ, you can, but only to admire and adore it, as if it is the Christ child. <laughs> do, do people 
admire and adore it when they see it. Yeah, they do. And I've got a big purple feature wall with uh, an amazing self-portrait. The same artist manipulated photograph with pastels that did the friend's wedding one. That was what, what, where I got What wedding. have you been manipulated into in that picture? Uh, it's just herself. Up right. again. Yeah. She tried oh, not to you. It wasn't you. It's her. No, right. it was a self-portrait of the oh, artist. Uh, yes. I just bought it off Saatchi Art, but then I got, I got to know her. But um, it's another one of the artists I've... I'm grooming. Um, <laughs> grooming for my own ends. Um, but, they, but uh, yeah, I, I tried to give it to the National Portrait Gallery, Russ, and they were like, we don't know who this is. Uh, I've never commissioned a painting of myself, though, and I think that would, be, that would feel really arrogant. But, I, but I, I commissioned one of my husband, but it's not of my husband. It is, but it's him sort of standing in a field not looking at the camera. He doesn't know I'm taking a picture of him with our friends in the background. So I don't think... It's not like a portrait of my husband. When people do that, I'm like, oh... Interesting that no. you would go to a paint. I mean, I, people do it as family thing, but people who commission portraits of themselves, I, well, I think it's a bit odd. I think it's when people turn up and the, the whole family's dressed up as cowboys and then they have like a black and white picture taken as if it was taken in like 1850 during the gold rush. That's not art, that's a fun fair. <laughs> no, but it's, it's like that sort of thing where you see them kind of like yeah. families all dressed up in like a costume picture at like a fun fair. Yeah. Um, that's I the future. <laughs> Another thing I found really fascinating about you is actually what you're wearing right now, the, the necklace you have. Oh, yeah. And I love this story, the idea of each, the meaning of each um, object How hanging How do you on. know about that, Robert? Because I've done my research. We're interviewing you. In a very real way, I find it a bit creepy that you know this because you've never said it to me. But you've been doing it. I have talked about this on YouTube. And you I know I love it. about it in a film. I'm, oh, yeah. And I, it's, I found it very touching because they're almost like talisman, but I don't like the word talisman because it has the word man in it. Yeah. But, this is what I call this is what I call patriarchy jewelry, because this is a Victorian guard chain that was that was uh, that was worn by a Victorian gentleman. And he would he would wrap it around himself and have his fob watch on one end of it. So I bought the chain and then had it made into this necklace. And each of these charms means something. But the the one I love the most is a um, it's a coin that the suffragettes damaged in what they were called outrages. So the suffragettes would, sometimes they'd bomb things. That wasn't an outrage. That was an act of terrorism. But uh, they'd do little things. So one of the things they used to do is, is devalue coins. So on one side it says votes for women, and on the other it says WSPU. They'd put it back into circulation. They'd have to be taken out. And they did it to make the coins valueless. And ironically, they're now worth quite a lot of money, proving, I think, that women can't do maths. So I had it made into a charm by putting a gold edge where around. Did you, where did you find that? Uh, I think vintage dealers wow. have them. They're, they're not I mean, they're not crazy money, but they're like 70 to 120 quid. Um, and I had it made into... Did they do a lot then? How many coins did you think they took out of circulation? Oh, they do it all the time, yeah. They were, they were constantly doing it. They'd take them out of circulation, damage them, put them back in, and to try and undermine the treasury. Um, so yeah, they, were all, they were doing all sorts of things to try and get the vote. Um, but that makes me feel connected to the past, the fact that this this Victorian man who presumably did have some kind of power influence had this chain and that the suffragettes were undermining that power and I, I now wear both of those things. I wear this all the time. And yeah, I think that kind of thing can be sort of feel like a bit of a living piece of practical, pragmatic art. Do you, do you like that sculpture, the statue that's just gone up in Parliament Square about six months ago by Gillian Waring, which is courage begets courage everywhere? Is that the slogan? Yeah, Millicent Fawcett. Yes, yeah. have you seen it? I was at the unveiling. I was invited oh, to Khan to the unveiling. And the funny thing is, I live with um, I'm a Syrian man uh, who came to... Uh, so my husband and I met him as a refugee who came to do a podcast of ours. And I said, where are you living? He didn't have his papers yet. And he said, oh, I'm sofa surfing. And I said, well, we're going away for three weeks. Do you want to mind our cats? Anyway, one thing led to another. He's now like our brother or grown-up son. And... We get on so well with him. He's just really so family to us. We absolutely adore him. But I sent him a picture, because I went with Gina, who I work with, who's one of my closest friends. And we were sort of at this fancy unveiling with Sadiq Khan. And uh, we were waiting for this statue to be unveiled. And she was just, you know, it was just sort of in this big kind of, you know, black veil. And um, I sent this picture to Steve and went, here I am, somewhere fancy, and sent her a picture, a picture of the statue veiled, and he, he just texted back, she looks like my grandmother. <laughs> because his grandmother is veiled. Oh, of course. It's like a burqa. Wow. It's a burqa joke, <laughs> right. which nobody here feels safe to laugh at because Steve's not doing it, but it is Steve's joke, and I'm telling you it's Steve's joke, and he's You're serious. retelling it. I'm retelling Steve's joke. Steve, are you here? 
No. No. Damn. I love Steve. I wish Steve was here. That was yeah. your I'm a feminist part. Yeah, that is actually one of my I'm a femi- fe- feminist parts. <laughs> I'm a feminist. But I'm madly in love with Steve, your lodger. Yeah. Join, yeah. join, join the queue. Yeah, I've heard. My, everyone is in love with Steve. I, am, I feel I'm some Steve's most valuable player because I'm like Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. That when everyone comes around, I go, do I have 20,000 a year in a house in the country? Um, but he is, no. I, when he first moved in, so many of my mates were going, I have heard that you have taken in a Syrian refugee and I just want to say you are such a humanitarian. No, you really live your values. And I have to de- I'd have to declare that he was the best looking man I'd ever seen because there'd be these women going, I just love what you're doing. And then they'd meet him and go, fuck off. <laughs> Obviously, we'd all take in a serum of GV look like that. That's not what? That's not what I was imagining. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. He's a very handsome man. But and also, it was that also- story that I heard on Guilty Feminist the other week. And the minute I heard it, I was like, he's handsome. So I immediately go on and saw the film of you and him, I think on Channel 4 News or something, where you were discussing him living at your house. Then I find out he, he makes jewellery. And he's like the kindest, coolest, most intelligent, erudite, incredible human being anyway. And then he's also incredibly attractive. And he makes jewellery. I know. I was like, he's the perfect man. I, I, you're getting a bit squeaky. I am. <laughs> I, I don't mind me saying. Uh, that happens. He's passionate. Yeah. Yeah. Very passionate. Yes. No, he is. He was doing architecture in, at Damascus University and then he had to leave. And he ended up becoming a firefighter when he was living in the Calais jungle. And now he makes jewellery, but he's going to go back to university to do languages. Every one of his jobs is a romantic comedy hero job. He's a firefighter, he's an architect. He was a personal trainer in Syria as well. And basically all his jobs are the jobs of romantic comedy heroes. But he's a very, no, he's such a special person. And the, his mates who I've met who are refugees as well, I've just learned so much about what it is to have all your attachments com- just completely disrupted at a moment's notice and the trauma that goes along with being a refugee, but also how much we can all do if you meet a refugee and get to know them as a human being and stop seeing them as a refugee how much that means so much more to a refugee than to a regular person to have a cup of tea have a conversation ask them about them what their life was like before what they're interested in what they like so many refugees I know are artists there's it's so many so his friend Yu Yu who's here as well he's only 20 he's designed he's doing some fashion design he's going to film school now the amount of is he really handsome as well he's so handsome wow so handsome Um, We had a lovely refugee come and stay at Christmas because you could do this thing called Refugees at Home where you, if you're going away at Christmas, you can just let refugees take your house. Um, And we did that at Christmas. This lovely young man came and he was gay and he'd had to leave because of being gay. And uh, he was Kurdish, really lovely young man. And he was a lawyer and a part-time model as well. And I don't just ask for handsome refugees. I don't know. It's there's not. Some, there's some it algorithm that's no, linked into you. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I'm just discovering there's an immense amount of erudite, very charming, you know, um, really, really intellectual, delightful, and very arty people. And sometimes people, you know, the way refugees are portrayed, and refugees are all sorts of people. They're not all angels, and they're not all art dealers, just to be very clear. But the there any way I think of it now is that if you took any thousand people from the UK and put them in a boat off Dover, that's who refugees are. There's a CEO, there's an artist, there's you know a, a bisexual librarian who's suffering from unrequited love. There's a software developer who believes they're going to be a multimillionaire. There's everybody. Yeah. I'm actually quite interested in art therapy as well, and the idea of uh, making art in order to work through all the things you've been through. Have you experienced that with, with the refugee um, charity oh. that you... Yes, well, that's... I mean, what I, what I see in Steve, because Steve and I have been working on storytelling shows together, is how much more story he's got than anybody else I've ever met because he was displaced for six years. And also how interesting the dynamics of his life were in Syria that we wouldn't know about. Um, So there's there's a deep interest there, but also all of his adventures. It's more that I think many refugees have more to make art about. And the thing is, I was, as I said before, partly raised in a cult. And it took me a lot of effort and will to get out of that. And then finally, I only really detached from that psychologically in 2015. But I was saying to Russ, I think 
it, it, it gives you your artist pass in a way. Mm. Like to have something that makes you understand what it is to be an outsider. And I think if it's, you know, we've all got something we're carrying. If it's not a cult, it's a divorce. If it's not a divorce, it's being gay in a society and a time that, that, that disapproved of that and didn't allow that. If it's not, that is something else. So it's actually, if you want to ex- access the artist within, I think it's actually looking at the things that have hurt, that have made you vulnerable, that you don't want to look at, that's where the stories lie. That's where the empathy with other people is. And that's where you will find your artist pass. That's where you'll find your card. And do you know what? I was always quite a bit bitter and cynical about having been a Jehovah's Witness. thought, what would my life have been like if I'd just been able to go to uni and just have normal experiences with boys and maybe girls and go out and party and find myself? And I'll tell you when it was that I, I changed my mind and accepted it. 2011, Adelaide Fringe Festival. So many things happened to me at that festival. It was only three weeks. Changed my life. One o'clock in the morning, I was sitting in a field, not, not unlike this, in a Spiegel tent, not unlike this, with more walls. And I saw an artist called Gatto Chocolat. Does anyone know Gatto Chocolat? Yeah. Of course, Gatto Chocolat. Yeah. He's amazing. And if you don't know him, he's Nigerian or Ugandan? It's Niger- I think he's Nigerian. He's, um, he's a trained opera singer. He's a trained opera singer. He's a drag act, um, and he's, you know, he's, he's, I think he would, he would say he identifies as fat. And he, was, he did this show where he was putting on makeup, like we, we were in his dressing room, and he would change outfits and change makeup while he was singing. And I remember he was singing, I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo. And I was watching, I was just like tears just streaming down my face because he can't go back home. He can't tell his mum he's gay. He can't be who he is in his own, he would be killed and he can't, he just can't do it. He can't. And he was just singing, I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo and putting on this latex suit and then talking about how children often loved him and would come up because they wouldn't be frightened or weirded out. They wouldn't think anything of, they would just see him as this amazing kind of cuddly, wonderful, colourful character. And he was singing these songs about being an outsider and I was just sitting there and something, something like snapped in me because he'd said to me, you should talk about being a Jehovah's Witness on stage. I never had. I didn't want to. I felt, I don't want to talk about that. It was a part, horrible part of my life and it's gone and I don't have to and I don't want to. And I just, it was like a dam broke watching him and I was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and I went, this is what's given me my artist pass. If I'd been a normal, if I'd gone on the conveyor belt yeah, of uni yeah, yeah, and got yeah. a job, blah, 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 I wouldn't be in a field at one o'clock in the morning watching an, an, an African drag act share his pain through song. Yeah. That's what's got me here. And yeah. I went, this is what has given me the, the, the motivation and actually, in a way, inspired the craft to be an artist. And I will never regret it. N- never fear your pain. It's amazing. And actually, we are so lucky and blessed, genuinely, that that happened to you because your show, The Guilty Feminist, has completely become one of my favourite things to listen to. And on Sunday mornings, I'm often on my own because I live alone, and I wake up and I used to be very like, oh, I used to feel quite lonely on Sunday mornings. And I kind of dreaded it, actually, because, you know, there's no work, which I often lose myself in. You know, sob story here. But uh, it's actually become almost like a friend. And I will listen to it in the morning, and I effing love it. And today, I went up to get a coffee from the local coffee shop because I'm moving to a new house and I haven't got very much on my old flat. And um, I was listening to the latest episode, um, I think from the Palladium or something. I'm not sure. It was like a live episode anyway. And um, the lady next to me started giving me a kind of face and she was going like that. And I was listening and sort of ignored her. And then she did it again and then did it again. And then suddenly I took my earpiece out and was like, are you okay? You're trying to say something. And she went, I love that podcast. And then I was like, I love that podcast. And she went, I'm a feminist. And I went, I'm a feminist. (laughs) And we had this little moment in the coffee shop. And what I love is that I now know that I am a feminist. And I don't think before your show, I'd even realised that I was. But what I love about it is it's not just about, it's obviously a lot about women, you know, understanding that they're feminists and that it's accessible to women. You don't have to be a perfect feminist or, you know, it's okay if you're 40% of the time you're a feminist. But as long as you are engaging with it and having that conversation, but what for me it was like I I'm really empathizing with the show and I just love listening to it and I'm learning so much from it so thank you for that because it's a genuine like thank you thank everyone for listening and for engaging and participating do you have an I'm a feminist but Robert I'm a feminist but 
Um, I was just in Wales because my mother was um, being given a fellowship from the University of Aberystwyth. And my mum is actually a very big uh, figure in my life who I love very much and I was very proud of her. So I went up to Wales for it and I really needed to go to the bathroom and there was a huge queue and I saw the queue and I was like, oh no, huge queue. Then I realized it was all women in the queue. There were no men in the queue. So I actually thought, this is great. I just get to go to the toilet. I went to the toilet. As I was finishing in the toilet, washing my hands, I thought, oh my God, I feel real guilt. Like all these women are queuing outside and I just go to an empty bathroom. So I went outside and I tried to start a rebellion. And I was like, just so you know, everyone, the toilet in there is empty. There is no one in the men's toilets. There's about 25 women in the queue here. Why don't you just go and use the men's toilet? But it didn't actually work, so I failed. Oh. But I did try and I, I did feel really yeah. guilty. Feminist act. Good yeah. on you. I, I don't think that was you. And, and he said, "Why?" He was like, "Why the fuck aren't women's toilets bigger?" bigger. I think true. it's so it's outrageous. True. But it may be, and maybe if a man comes out and goes, "All right, ladies, there's some empty cubicles <laughs> in there." I know, uh, I know. Follow me, children. It might seem like you're a bit of a creepy pied piper, so maybe that's exactly. why it didn't work. Yeah, yeah. I was very aware Just of that as well. Better put that out there. Yeah. I think you need to make it clear. I'm not going to be in there. I will stand guard at the door to make sure yeah, nobody... Yeah, yeah. And just so you all know, it was empty, completely empty, and there was no man in sight, so... It's yeah. time for non-binary loose. It's a bit... It's ridiculous. The cubicles are all separate anyway, and men, to be honest, cis men are just going to have to be cleaner because your loose do stink. And, but if you share them with us, we will raise the bar and you will lower the lid. Ah... Right, we've got literally about two minutes. We always finish off our podcast with two questions. They're yes. very tough. The first one is, if you ha could do an art heist, you could steal a work of art from anywhere in the world and you could live with it by yourself, your touchstone artwork, what would that be? And we can help you with like vans, cranes, anything you want. Oh, I think I'd have that, the big spider in the Tate Modern. Oh, the Louise, Louise Bourgeois. Bourgeois. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, Love thank Louise you. Bourgeois. I mean, this is one of those moments where he's going to go, do you not know Louise Bourgeois? Because well, she was round at my flat earlier artists. and she yeah. actually gave me a sketch. Yeah. This is what he's like. <laughs> Very good. And, and the second question is? What is your favourite colour? My favourite colour? Um, well, I think it's like a cornfield blue. But I think my colour, it's always a blue, a blue to a purple. But my favourite colour changes uh, with almost with the day and the time of day. And if you ask me at midnight when I've done a load of MDMA later in the field choking obviously that's a comedic embellishment it's ketamine um <laughs> it'll probably be a vivid purple very good wonderful have well, you got an i'm a feminist butt ross you are say again yeah, have you got an i'm a feminist yeah, butt? Yeah, i was about to say you've got out of your i'm a feminist butt um well we, we, we were sort of train up and everything i said just didn't seem to no resonate. everything you said I, was great because I, I, I said like rob has a nickname for me and I said, I'm a feminist, but I quite like it when Rob calls me bitch. <laughs> and then I said, I don't call you bitch. I call you bish, which is an affectionate term, B-I-S-H. And all this time I thought he was calling me bitch. He thought I was calling him a bitch it. the whole time, but he loved it. He yeah. loved He's a it. messy bitch who loves the drama. <laughs> that's true. It is true. true. It is true. Well, anyway, that's it. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much, everybody. Today. Thank you, Deborah Francis Wright. Yeah, thank you, Deborah. We love you. Thank you. Love you. If you, you go guys. on our Instagram, there'd be a lot of features. You can follow the Instagram at Talk Art, and you can see all the images of everything we spoke about today. And we will be back very soon. Yes. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you, Latitude. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Recorded at Spiritland London by Anthony Shaw and edited by Gareth Isles. Subscribe to TalkArt on iTunes and Spotify. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.